Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. start this lecture, you underlined in the word value, I will also underline the word understanding, and that will become clear as, 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 as I go through this, uh, uh, this, this talk. Um, let me start with two contrasting statements about why the arts matter that were made in England a year or two ago. The first is from Maria Miller, then the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. In a speech directed at leaders of the cultural sector at the British Museum in April 2013, she said... I come to you today and ask you to help me reframe the argument, to hammer home the value of culture to our economy. I will position the arts not as on the periphery, but at the centre of economic growth. And in that endeavour, I ask for both your support and your ambition. It was a graphic statement of a recurrent theme in defence of culture and, above all, of public funding of culture. It produced a precise response from Robert Peston, at that time the BBC's economics editor, which I heard him give in a talk at the British Library. If we could prove conclusively that the economic impact of the arts was zero, would we therefore prevent children from learning to draw? And he then went on to say, if not, why not? I've started with these two quotations because they exemplify how the case for the arts somehow always returns to the question of its economic impact. Government and the cultural sector in the UK point to benefits to tourism, to employment, to expenditure associated with cultural venues and the importance of the creative industries for the economy. All of this may well be true. But why is the case for the arts so frequently made in terms of the economy as if the other benefits are of lesser importance, not least those that flow from the engagement by individuals? So let me start somewhere else before reflecting on the broader benefits that may flow from arts and culture and the way we can understand them. Let's start with individual experience and let's start with me. In October 2012, it's October 2012, and my wife Rita and I are in Bologna. We're in Piazza Maggiore thinking of having a beer when we see a small group of brass and wind players playing something both lively and plaintive. Then they peeled off and each still playing wandered individually around the square before gathering together again and walking towards the Basilica of San Pantronio. People were following them. We didn't know what it was, but joined the group and entered the crowded Basilica where a large choir was already singing at one end. Our band, the band we'd followed, took up a position at the other end of the nave, and from one end to the other, across the audience already gathered there, they performed alternately. The choir shouting and singing, the band replying and echoing. Rita and I stood mesmerised. After about 15 minutes, it came to a climax, with choir and band performing together. Was it the day of judgement, we asked ourselves, or what? And as we wandered out, I learned that music was in fact by John Cage, it had been a quite overwhelming experience. The music, the mystery, the movement made it such, and it lived with us for days to come. Another personal example, equally moving but very different, the British Museum's ex exhibition three years ago on Ice Age art. It was an intense exhibition of art objects produced 30,000 to 40,000 years ago. The pieces, mostly very small, were intricately carved in flint and stone. 
images of animals and humans, including evocative carvings of pregnant women. It was calculated that even the smallest of the objects would have taken 40 hours of work. You don't do that in a demanding and often dangerous life unless that carving mattered. The precision and beauty, the tantalising similarities to much of our own art were very powerful. It moved me deeply with a sense that I was reaching out over 40,000 years to other human beings who were not as different from me as I'd thought, and some of them were artists. My third personal example takes me somewhere different, to the power of art to break down assumptions about the other. A remarkable exhibition of Nick Danziger's photos of daily life in North Korea was organised by the British Council. He was given permission to take formal photos, but when his government minders were, dis were distracted, often by the British Council official with him, he took the photos he really wanted. Look at this photo of young women. Or this one of a women's hairdressing salon. We think of North Koreans as people ground down by one of the world's most oppressive regimes. And although Danziger's photos in no way say that the horrors of the regime don't exist, they restore their humanity to the people of North Korea. <coughs> they are real people, like you and me. Art, whether it's visual art, theater, literature, music, can do that. They remind us that others are complex, real people, not stereotypes. A final personal example. China Mieville's The City in the City is a remarkable novel published in 2009. It's a murder mystery set in the decaying city of Beshil, somewhere on the edges of Europe. Beshil and Ulkwoma are two cities with different languages, cultures and peoples, but they emerged from a civil war that divided one city in two, with residents forbidden to travel to the other part. It had not been possible to divide the city entirely because in the central area they share the same space. When they were in the city centre, as they often were, the two peoples must not look at each other or speak to each other. They are on the same streets, but they look past each other, seeing only their own people, having learned from childhood to unsee the other. It's a gripping and haunting story. I can really recommend the book. One that still lingers in my mind because it's an image that works so well. An image of situations where people occupy the same space but talk and see past each other. Whether that be arts and science researchers in a university, different ethnic groups, whatever. The image of seeing and unseeing has lived with me ever since, illuminating all kinds of situations, and I think back at that book. Why have I started this lecture with an indulgent glimpse of my own personal engagement with art and culture? It's because too many who research the impact of cultural policy don't show us that it matters to them personally. Is this due to some assertion of scientific objectivity? Maybe, but if so, two points emerge that will be central to this lecture. The first is about experience, how discussion of the difference that arts and culture make has too frequently neglected individual experience. What happens to people when they actually engage, whether individually or in groups? The second is the need to recognize approaches other than the scientific, the importance of arts and humanities disciplines when we try to understand this value. These are disciplines for which methodological rigor is just as important as in the sciences, but it's a different approach, better suited often to the complexity of both activities and responses that characterize art and culture. Only if we could question the hierarchy that prevails today, one that subordinates arts and humanities approaches, can we get a fuller understanding of the value of arts and culture. <clears throat> These two acts of retrieval are threads that run through this lecture. Retrieval of personal experience and retrieval of arts and humanities approaches.
The lecture uh, arises, as Ian alluded to, out of a three-year program that I led for the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council. Called the Cultural Value Project, it funded about 70 pieces of work, which we placed in a wider research context by an extensive reading of existing literature. The project also involved a range of symposia and events, for example, on how art and culture can influence behaviours in relation to climate change, um, on its use to build peace following wars and civil conflict, and a symposium in Washington, D.C. on arts participation surveys. The report, <coughs> the report was launched at a major event in London in April of this year. I'm not going to try to present the report's findings this evening. That would bore you if I went through it in detail. You can read it yourself if you're interested. I hope you'll be inspired to read all 200 pages, but there's also a five-page executive summary at the front if you're not. <laughs> I want this evening to draw out some of the broader themes that arise from the project and from the report. In doing so, I'll be talking primarily about the UK. You'll tell me how this can be nuanced or indeed countered from the Australian perspective. <coughs> This is not the first time in human history that people have asked why the arts matter. And it's been argued that instrumental approaches can be traced back to the ancient world, that art for art's sake has never been the dominant mode of thinking. From the 1980s, however, the attachment of the arts to wider social and economic objectives came to dominate much more explicitly, exacerbated by the new public management and its introduction of targets, outputs, and audit. I'm sorry about this. My voice has been all day, two days in this review, I must have talked more than I, more than I expected to have done. Um, <clears throat> the need to demonstrate impact led to the UK's cultural sector entwining its value with other agendas. And the cultural sector felt obliged to make its case for public funding in terms different from that of the cultural experience itself and the consequences of that experience. Under New Labour, from 1997, other benefits became the driver. Not just the economy, but also urban regeneration, social inclusion, community cohesion, and health. These were the purposes of arts and cultural activity. It provoked <coughs> the British potter Grayson Perry's wonderful response in 2007, a pot called, this pot will reduce crime by 29%. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. Um, Although there's, although there's little evidence that data on these outcomes had any material effect on the scale or distribution of funding, the case continued to be made in these terms, and the cultural sector, in effect, vacated the territory where a case for the distinctive contribution of the arts might have been made. These instrumental arguments for the arts were mostly about economic and social objectives that could, of course, be achieved by other means. And the case for the arts rarely rested on rigorous analysis that included comparison with other ways of achieving the same objectives. The approach has not been uncontested, but it has shaped a discourse about the value of arts and culture, which, in its core features, has persisted to today. <clears throat> Even raising instrumental approaches in this way draws us into the seemingly endless set of dichotomies which have come to bedevil discussion of the value of art and culture. Instrumental approaches are often set against intrinsic value, a distinction which, in my view, has served to close down more than it has opened up discussion, positing some concept of art for art's sake to set against the sense that the art should somehow be useful. But if there are no benefits from the art other than the experience itself, then why should it have any more claim on our attention, let alone on the public purse, than any other activity? The question is surely what those benefits are 
and how they relate to the cultural experience. Some dichotomies do seem relevant. That between hedonic and eudaimonic approaches offers a helpful analytical distinction between the arts as a source of individual pleasure and satisfaction on the one hand and their association with personal growth and self-realisation on the other. But most of these dichotomies serve to inhibit understanding by introducing polarities into a nuanced world. <clears throat> Examples include that between high and popular culture, which sits alongside but doesn't replicate that between canon and margin, and serves to confuse in a world of cultural engagement where these are shifting and constructed entities. And what about the dichotomy between audience and participants, always uncertain in the way it treats audiences as passive, and which is breaking down even further in the interactive digital world? The report challenges other simplistic dichotomies, that which pits the amateur against the professional, public spaces of consumption against private, publicly funded against commercial. And when it comes to evaluation, the distinction between quantitative and qualitative division ev evidence. Binary polarities don't really help our understanding. We need to move on if we open fresh perspectives and fresh approaches to thinking about the value of culture. To understand the difference that arts and culture make, we must explore the full range of experiences rather than limiting it to those that are part of the canon and the publicly funded. Enlarging the focus to include not only subsidised arts, but also the commercial, third sector, amateur and participatory, immediately shifts analysis away from the conventional focus on the publicly funded. It also challenges the critique of arts participation based on what's been called a deficit model, asking who is missing from publicly subsidised provision, without looking at with what cultural activities those people, often less well-off, are actually engaging rather than where they're missing. A broader focus captures streamed film, music on YouTube, television, crafting at home, sharing photos on Flickr, singing in a church choir, and other neglected cultural activities. A report in 2008 estimated that there were 49,000 amateur arts groups in England with close to six million members. And to these we must add the many whose musical, art, or craft at leisure activity is carried out without joining any group. There's a much neglected ecology in which those simplistic boundaries are in reality very permeable. The flows between publicly funded and commercial sectors are the most obvious, but it also embraces the amateur and people engaging in online communities from home. As John Holden argued in research for the Cultural Value Project, an ecological approach concentrates on relationships and patterns within the overall system showing how careers develop, ideas transfer, money flows, and product and content move to and fro, around and between the funded, homemade, and commercial sectors. Warhorse and Matilda are simply high-profile examples of work originating in the subsidised theatre, where risks can be taken and talent developed, and then succeeding on the commercial stage and film. The BBC's network and supply chain connections have been shown to generate new music talent, and innovative technologies in the commercial sphere. The ecology also functions more modestly. Amateur theatre and music keeps commercial venues viable by regular hires, while also maintaining professional performers' income by employing them to augment amateur ensembles. Meanwhile, research for the Cultural Value Project has uncovered the myriad of interactions between those involved in live music production in different cities, a dense web that makes notions of commercial, subsidised and amateur irrelevant. In 2008, the musician Ed Sheeran, 
appeared at 317 small venues around the UK, and most of those gigs lost money for both venue and performer, a point that could be repeated for many musicians who were subsequently highly successful, astonishingly successful, as Ed Sheeran is. So any study of the value of arts and culture must embrace the diverse context in which it is experienced. Purpose-built cultural buildings, small-scale adapted spaces, institutions such as hospitals, care homes and prisons, as well as the home, the virtual space of the internet, and while travelling. Add to this to the ecology I've just sketched, and we have a complex matrix that we're only beginning to understand because we've focused for so long on a precise subset of cultural provision and engagement. Take a film as an example. A few years ago, a study for the British Film Institute showed that 94% of all film was watched at home. Yet when discussing film as a cultural form, we still talk of going to the cinema. The great majority of music is listened to at home or while traveling. Yet when we speak of musical experiences, we talk of going to concerts or music venues. The home, in fact, frames most of our engagement with film, music, television, literature, video games, and various kinds of digital online cultural activities. And virtually all of it is commercial and amateur. The digital transformation of much cultural experience looms large here. The most common commercial products, film, music, and books, can now all be downloaded and streamed from online sites. Video games and digital products are increasingly experienced in online and multiplayer environments. If this digital access to commercial culture is the most pervasive change, the most striking is the way co-production of content blurs the distinction between cultural producer and cultural consumer. The convergence of digital platforms, social networks, online niche communities, and consumer-generated content is at an early stage, but its scale is already astonishing. We know it through Flickr, the photo-sharing website which develops communities of practice that go beyond mere sharing. But far more niche, yet huge in terms of global users, is the music composition and sharing site SoundCloud, or Machinima, where users make original films from content derived from video games and gameplay recorded in real time and share them online. Six billion hits last year to that website. I'm sure many people in the room have never even heard of it. We're seeing major structural shifts in how culture is produced, performed, and experienced. The ability of digital activity to shape people's engagement with culture and the way they attach value to it is at an early stage, and we need to understand it much better. I've stressed that individual experience must be at the core of our understanding of the value of culture. But in an era in which arts and culture seemingly exist to serve other social and economic objectives, it is the value that dare not speak its name. A cultural value project sought to reposition first-hand individual experience of arts and culture at the heart of inquiry into cultural value. This perspective normally takes second place to its impact on the economy, cities, health, and so on. There are two problems with the imbalance. <coughs> it leads to a neglect of issues such as reflectiveness, empathy and imagination that have as their starting point individual experience. And secondly, it ignores the fact that some of the most important contributions of arts and culture to other areas start from that individual experience. The capacity to be innovative and creative in the economy, the way small-scale arts assets and activities help communities, or how arts engagement supports recovery from mental and physical illness. Thinking about the value of culture needs to give far more attention to how people experience their engagement. A chapter of the report 
<clears throat> explores the ability of arts and culture to help shape, shape reflective individuals, facilitating greater understanding of themselves and their lives, increasing empathy with respect to others, and helping in appreciation of the diversity of human experience and cultures. We can point to so much evidence of this. A study of young people in Bristol for the Cultural Value Project showed how making music and watching films provided them with an opportunity to reflect on their lives and their identities. A project with young cancer sufferers explored how art might help them make and unmake the scripts through which they make sense of their lives. One result was a bing-bong ringtone devised by young patients as an amusing take on the warning noise that drove them all mad whenever the infusion machine that delivered their medication experienced problems. The ringtone, made through an art project, one of many outcomes, evoked all kinds of responses, more complex responses, from those who visited the exhibition that came out of the project. Young people weren't meant to make jokes about their cancer. Art can thus re provoke reflection by subverting simple expectations. A dozen museums put on displays that successfully made people reflect on how they thought about disability. The use of the arts in training and developing medical practitioners showed this, shows this well. Deborah Kirkland used Oscar Wilde's parable, The Doer of Good, in which a figure walks through a beautiful city encountering the ambivalent, ambivalent and negative results of his earlier good deeds. She used it to stimulate GP registrars to discuss their attitudes to consent and duty of care in a way they would never have done, not as thoughtfully nor as openly had the topic been addressed directly. Their understanding that wishing to do good isn't always the same as doing good opened up a discussion of Alderhay Hospital in Liverpool and the scandal over its retention of diseased children's, or deceased children's, <coughs> children's organs. One can similarly find scientists working closely with artists speaking of how that engagement disrupted some of their linear ways of thinking, helped them to see alternative possibilities in their models and their data. Examples proliferate, and you'll have to look at the report to see their richness and also the difficulties in interpreting them. Focus on reflection might seem to privilege the cognitive over the affective dimensions of the arts and cultural experience, when in fact a real understanding must grasp the interaction between the two. A study of Welsh Eisteddfodau festivals established the importance of the emotional dimension of people's participation in enhancing their sense of self, their understanding of themselves, and where they fit culturally. These were, it was argued, affective as well as cognitive processes. And we can see it in a striking ethnographic study of the Grand Gestures Elders Dance Group in Gateshead in Northern England. This comprises 14 dancers, aged between 60 and 90, who develop improvisatory dance that they take into residential homes for the elderly and into public spaces. A fascinating report showed how the affective experience of dancing had a formative impact on the participants' self-identity, a recurrent theme being the difference between the self that they perform for others and the more authentic self, they say, they experience in the absorption of the dance sessions. I could spend the rest of the lecture giving examples such as these. I'd have to tell you about the Readers' Organisation Shared Reading Scheme, in which small groups of vulnerable and often damaged people, often who had never read actively for themselves in their lives, with histories of addiction, homelessness and abuse, read aloud to each other from a novel or a poem. This provided points of departure for them to discuss their own lives, with a trigger often coming in powerful literary fashion from a word or a phrase that evoked a discussion for them. 
In so many examples, the doctors I've referred to, or the participants in this shared reading, is the experience through aesthetic distance. This is not real, but it connects with reality. The experience through aesthetic distance that allows reflection on very difficult topics. That is surely something we can all attest to from our own cultural experience. The report has two striking case studies of how arts engagement has been used to provoke reflection and empathy. The first is its deployment in the criminal justice system. Above all, with those in prison, where a plethora of initiatives involve drama groups, visual arts, dance, embroidery, and much else. These have been subject to extensive evaluations. Have they reduced reoffending? The evidence is not there to show that they have, but how can having been in a drama or art group in prison prevent reoffending in the face of challenges such as housing, relationships, and employment? There is powerful evidence, however, that it has started the process towards desistance, the process of personal growth through which an offender shifts their identity to being a non-offender. At the heart of desistance, now the prevailing orthodoxy in approaches to reoffending, is an ability to think about oneself and others, to see genuine choices and options, to imagine other life circumstances and other possible futures. Art introduces uncertainty where only certainty seemed to exist. It leaves ambiguities and silences in a prison environment where these are not normally present. It introduces options where no choices seemed available. There is significant evidence of its role in shifting offenders' sense of themselves and their relation to others. The other case study concerns professional and informal carers, where arts and culture are deployed extensively to help developing empathy and understanding in the caring relationship. It provides a case study of the capacity of arts engagement to facilitate an appreciation and understanding of others, one manifestation of which is empathy. Theory of mind is a dimension of this. It describes our capacity to comprehend that people other than ourselves have mental states, that they hold beliefs, responses, and emotions that may not be identical to our own. Drama, film, photography, museums, and music have all been shown in studies to facilitate empathy. And literature, where there's been much research, when we're a fascinating controlled experiment by psychologists in the United States, concluded that reading literary fiction as opposed to non-fiction, popular fiction, or nothing at all, led to better performance on tests of both effective and cognitive theory of mind. Art and culture are now used extensively in the training and support of professional carers. It helps them handle often very difficult pressures and relate more empathetically to those with whom working can be so difficult. An extensive network of reading groups for medical and nursing staff at United States veterans hospitals, for example, played a major role in the staff's ability to handle with empathy and understanding the often traumatised and difficult patients with whom they worked. And such methods have been used effectively in the UK to support staff caring for people living with a dementia. A further dimension involves art practice directed at residents and patients where the care staff are actively involved. This has been shown to, to humanise the relationship between carer and cared for. The most systematic study tested the impact of time slips, which uses photo and word prompts to encourage people with dementia to join in sto storytelling. This US study compared 10 nursing homes involved in the intervention with 10 homes with similar characteristics that were not. The main focus was the residents, but close ethnographic observation of the homes two weeks after the interventions had finished 
showed that care staff who had participated in the time slip program with the patients, with the, the cared for, not only reported more positive views of residents with dementia compared with those in the control group homes, but they also showed much higher levels of social interaction with residents based on respect rather than just responsibility. The quality of basic care was not different, but they looked them in the eyes when speaking to them. They listened to their responses. They offered invitations rather than commands. The residents' humanity had been restored in the eyes of the carers, restored by working with them together in an arts programme. I've dwelt for some time on reflectiveness and empathy as a fundamental outcome of arts and cultural engagement because it's been so neglected in discourses about the value of arts and culture which neglect the individual experience and look elsewhere in the search for value. Yet surely it points to something fundamental about the society in which we all wish to live. And it is in part the foundation for something else that we highlight in the report, the relationship of arts and culture to civic agency and civic engagement. This draws on extensive evidence in the US, less so in the UK, that arts and culture may produce engaged citizens, promoting not only civic behaviours, such as voting and volunteering, but also helping articulate and fuel a broader political imagination. They've been used to help minority groups find a voice and express their identity, while a workshop we organised explored how arts and culture can engage people in thinking about climate change. If used not didactically, which didn't work, but as a stimulus for reflection and debate. This pinpoints something fundamental about the relationship of arts and culture to, public engage to political engagement and citizenship. Cultural engagement often helps translate abstract notions into narratives on a human scale, and in the open and non-didactic fashion that arts allows. It works obliquely, forcing us to reimagine and disturbing complacency. In this respect, whether we're talking about climate change, public art and civic action, or young people using it to challenge planning decisions as through England's Creative Partnership Programme. It underlines the continuing capacity of art and culture to generate and articulate alternatives to current assumptions and fuel a broader political imagination that's an essential part of democratic societies. One final word on citizenship. Arts and culture have been used extensively in the Balkans, in Northern Ireland and elsewhere to bring together as citizens people living in societies traumatised by war, often by civil war, though the evidence for the lasting benefits of these initiatives is uneven at best. And we need to remember that culture itself was often fundamental in helping drive the very conflicts whose damage it is now being called upon to repair. I've concentrated on these themes of reflectiveness, empathy, citizenship, and civic values because they have been so neglected in discussions of the value of arts and culture. And because, had I chosen to emphasise all the elements that contribute to arts and culture value, what I had said about each would have been far too superficial. But what are those other components of cultural value that we look at in the report? It would be unthinkable not to highlight the considerable and distinctive contribution that arts and culture make to those areas on which the case has most rested, the economy, cities and communities, health and well-being and education. Each has been deployed, often effectively, but often as little more than poorly evidenced advocacy in support of the case for investing in arts and culture. Each needs careful interrogation, however, to ask whether the evidence is as convincing as is claimed to be, and to ask whether in each of these areas the benefits may lie elsewhere from those most claimed. We do this in report and conclude that all are important, but not always in the way conventionally claimed. 
This particularly applies to the economy, cities and education. Economic impact studies have dominated the case that has been made for the public funding for the arts in many countries, showing the economic contribution that a cultural sector or a venue makes to the national and especially local economy. The report has serious doubts about the methods and conclusions that are drawn, and indeed about the focus on economic impact without asking about opportunity costs, whether other investment might have generated even greater economic returns than investing in arts and culture. I'd suggest that there are far more important areas linked more fundamentally to what arts and culture do. The way a broader arts and cultural environment feeds into the creative industries is one. Recognising that all too often advocates elide the two and assume the connection is, is proven. Another is seeing arts and culture as part of a wider innovation system, shaping a population that is challenging and creative, and also producing spillover mechanism that link arts and culture, the creative industries, and other parts of the economy. And the part played by a lively cultural environment in creating the conditions that attract talent and investment to a country and above all to a city. These all seem so much more important for the economy than is shown by economic impact assessments and economic size assessments, even if they don't generate nice headline numbers such as £8 generated for every £1 of public money invested. When thinking about the impact of arts and culture on cities and urban life, the report questions the regeneration benefits assumed to flow from major cultural buildings or from vibrant creative and cultural quarters. The regeneration of places is usually accompanied by gentrification and the rise of the experience economy, where outsiders come for the buzz, the cafes and the shopping. A corollary of this, however, is the disruption and exclusion of communities, as those who live there, and equally significant those who produce there, including most creative production, are forced out by rising property prices and rising rents. The very forces that help shape the cultural buzz depart, and the experience economy is what remains. The difficulty in finding long-term consequences of major culture-led regeneration projects, projects has been underlined by attempts to evaluate the European culture, Capital of Culture programme. In contrast, smaller-scale cultural assets seem to have a more positive effect on neighbourhoods and communities. Small commercial, community and participatory arts, such as design studios, small music venues, community arts groups, seem to have more sustainable benefits and may constitute a more balanced and organic path to regeneration. Arts and culture certainly bring benefits to cities and to urban life, but in the context of structured urban inequality, we need far more clarity about what those benefits are. Arts education in schools is regularly claimed to improve attainment in standard tests. The evidence from the US and the UK is seriously unconvincing on this, with any improvement marginal at best and often virtually non-existent. On the other hand, are the factors that underpin learning and that have been shown to be improved by arts education. Factors such as cognitive abilities, confidence, motivation, curiosity, problem solving, and of course the imagination and questioning that are fundamental to both wider learning and the needs of the future workforce. But improving attainment itself is not confirmed by the many studies that have been carried out. And by the way, even if it were true that studying music makes you better at maths, as is often claimed, why do we never ask whether studying maths might make you better at music? Why do we acquiesce in a particular hierarchy of disciplines? Both are surely important. And the contribution of arts and culture to improving health and well-being 
is the final major area, and one in which, compared with these others, the report does not challenge some of the repeated advocacy claims. Activities in health and well-being, including dedicated clinical arts therapies, use of arts engagement to deal with mental health problems, including those that inhibit recovery from physical illness, the use of art and design to produce better healthcare environments, community arts interventions to improve social inclusion and mental health, and the benefits of engagement for older people, as well as for those living with dementia. <coughs> the report notes powerful evidence in support of many of these claims, but it also stresses that only by gathering qualitative and personal evidence can the more pervasive benefits for health and well-being be fully grasped. The absence of consistent quality in research design and methods in this area is, for this reason, a cause for real concern. For as long as that's the case, policymaker policy scepticism about what emerges from quality, qualitative studies of arts and culture and health will persist. And these comments about health, together with those on the other main areas of benefit, lead inexorably to the question of how we know what difference arts and culture makes. And here I'd argue we need a radical rethink of what counts as evidence and about the explicit hierarchy of evidence that seems to me to get in the way of proper understanding. This is where the retrieval of the arts and humanities and their methods comes in, something that I promised at the start of the lecture. There are different reasons for seeking, collecting and analysing evidence about the difference that engaging with arts and culture makes. There is research carried out by academics better to understand the phenomenon. There is evaluation carried out by cultural organisations or their consultants, generally to produce finding for funders as part of accountability. And there's reflective practice, whereby arts practitioners and organisations reflect critically on what they've been doing with a view to developing further their practice, whatever the objectives of that practice are. In reality, the three different categories overlap, even if their objectives may differ. The problem in the UK, at least, is that evaluation has, for the cultural sector, been too closely tied to meeting the accountability needs of funders, with the consequence that it's seen as a burden and really as a way to inform and support practitioners themselves. We need a much broader and more constructive approach to evaluation, one that could deliver broader benefits to the cultural sector, while at the same time providing more meaningful information to funders. And if this is to happen, then it's essential there's a commitment on the part of all involved to evaluating the principal objectives of arts and cultural activities. Because only when these are included will the process of evaluation command the respect of practitioners and organisations. If cultural organisations need to take this more seriously and recognise its real potential to help them meet their own artistic and social objectives, then so do funders. And I've been impressed, by the way, that trusts and foundations in the UK and in the US and elsewhere have shown much greater interest in this question than have governments. The need to broaden how we evaluate the difference that arts and culture makes leads directly to the need to question the assumed hierarchy of evidence and methodologies. This hierarchy privileges quantitative data because of the ideological power of measurement. And it privileges the experimental method and randomised control trials in delivering secure knowledge. Note the word understanding in the title of my talk. Understanding may include establishing causation. And in the very precise areas in which randomised control trials are of value, that is the case. But causation, in contrast to an association between variables, can only be established in very precise situations. Yet the experimental method and the RCT have become, in ways that many scientists themselves question, the gold standard for evidence. 
The cultural world rarely provides such opportunities because it is in its very character that it's about complex interactions <coughs> in complex situations. We can sometimes establish causal connections through narrowing and simplifying variables, most necessarily in some kinds of clinical arts therapies. But even in the field of health, this is the case in only a minority of interventions. There and in other areas of benefit that I've been discussing, what we find is association. And some of the best evidence comes from intensive case studies. We're thus led inexorably into the world of arts and humanities, as well as qualitative social science. In exploring the value of arts and culture, we need to embrace a range of arts and humanities approaches and qualitative forms of evidence, including ethnographic and arts and hum hermeneutics-based methods. And these characterise much of the work done for the Cultural Value Project and much of the wider work on which we've drawn. The analysis of meanings and representation, clarification of discursive constructs, discerning of historical precedents, alongside the close reading of texts, images, language and experience. These are amongst the many characteristics that arts and humanities-based approaches can contribute to the mix of our understanding. Striking examples from the Cultural Value Project include meticulous reading and rereading of transcripts from the reading groups by the reader organisation using approaches from literature and linguistics, or the use of a visual matrix to provide non-verbal stimulus for focus groups discussing public art in the town of Ilkfrakum in Devon. Close ethnographic observation in the study of young people's responses to environmental initiatives through the arts. The analysis of fandom through analysis of online posts. Getting young people from disadvantaged backgrounds involved in a theatre group to edit a film of their activities to implicitly reveal what the value was to them in their eyes. A comparison of discourses around museum practice in late 19th and late 20th century Manchester, and the understanding of the multi-layered meanings of a Sikh war memorial outside Brighton through historical and literary analysis. And case studies, carefully analysed and presented, create understandings that would have escaped a large-scale trawl for data across many settings. Rigorous case studies are crucial for evidence and analysis, notwithstanding the difficulties of scaling up approaches of that kind. This surely is is one of the great strengths of what the arts and humanities bring to society's knowledge and understanding. Extrapolation of, from case studies might be the first step towards creating both scalable and sensitive evaluation methods, enabling us better to understand the underlying processes and those aspects that are shared across different contexts. In calling for the valorization of arts and humanities methods, I am not decrying those of science or quantitative social science. There is no hierarchy and one should not be pr privileged over the others. Nor am I decrying the use of economic methods for capturing value through contingent valuation and subjective well-being approaches on which we funded some important work. What matters is the approaches that are appropriate for the understanding that is being sought. I'd go further and argue that much of the time what's needed for evaluation in particular is a multi-criteria analysis, which is why approaches such as social return on investment or the balanced scorecard might provide helpful frameworks. It has to be noted, however, that much evaluation of the effects of arts and culture does not meet the required standards of rigour in specification and research design, especially, but not only, in the use of qualitative methods. The much-cited observation that the plural of anecdote is not data has to be repeated here, because the cultural sector in particular loves anecdotes. If arts and humanities methods are capable of capturing many of the more complex 
effects of arts and culture and engagement, and I would argue strongly that they are, then the high research standards visible in many of the studies needs to become much more the norm across both research and evaluation. Let me finally raise a different problem associated with research and evaluation of the difference that arts and culture makes, and that is the dimension of time. Most evaluation is very short-term. As far as personal experience and personal engagement is concerned, the information captured is often immediate, as people participate in a cultural experience or as they emerge from it. Each engagement is treated on its own. The big question, as far as personal experience is concerned, is does it last? Or does it need regularly topping up to have the effects claimed? And if it lasts, for how long does it last? Four quick examples of how important the time dimension is and how important it is to take longitudinal evidence. In a study of the Cultural Value Project, theatre audiences were invited to respond to surveys before, immediately after, and then two months after, they attended performances of plays at the Young Vic, the Royal Shakespeare Company, or the Plymouth Drum. It emerged that what people said about the value of the experiences changed over time. There was a striking contrast between affect immediately after the performance, in which sensory aspects such as the production and the performance itself were uppermost in responses, and a greater focus on the cognitive when surveyed two months later, by which time respondents were primarily reflecting on the themes and ideas in the plays that they'd seen. Surveying only as people emerge from a cultural event would have missed this evolution. A second example comes from the use of arts and culture in post-conflict situations, whether to build bridges between separated communities or to allow individual communities to reflect on their trauma as a first step to healing the wounds. The evaluations are generally very short-term, mostly carried out by those working in the field to justify renewal of their funding. Whether the interventions have a lasting effect was doubted by the symposium we organised on the theme, because little in the way of longitudinal studies have been undertaken. Thirdly, Beatrice Garcia's thorough analysis of the evaluations of European capital of culture is caustic in its criticisms. To put it simply, each capital of culture was shown by its evaluation to have benefited substantially from the activities and investment associated with that year. Yet few of these evaluations were carried out more than a few months after the year had ended, and even fewer had established meaningful baseline data prior to obtaining the title. Whether they really succeeded, we can only know from longitudinal analysis, and Garcia concluded that, in the absence of political will and financial resources, longitudinal analysis was very rare indeed. Finally, the longest time span of all, and one that has fascinated me from the early days of this project. Cohort studies of health in Finland and Sweden have shown an association between long-term arts engagement over one's life and positive health outcomes over periods of 15 to 20 years or more, and that these are shown even after attempts are made to control for relevant social, economic and demographic variables such as income, education, occupation, other lifestyle factors. It's not just because middle-class people go to the arts. At one level, I'm with those who say there must be some confounding variable that has been missed. But I also wonder whether my response is rooted in assumptions that may be misguided. Whatever the answer, these four examples underline the importance of longitudinal studies in the future. I've taken you on a journey this evening. Those of you who came hoping for a simple answer about the value of arts and culture will have been disappointed, though I hope you now know why a simple answer is unattainable. Arts and culture is one of the most complex of human activities, 
in its character and its meanings, and in the effects that it's claimed to have. Without the breadth of issues and and de- without the breadth of issues and themes that I've raised this evening, and indeed many more covered in the report, serious understanding and debate about the value of arts and culture is impossible. The aim of the report that lies behind this lecture is to reconfigure how we discuss these issues and to have what I've always called more grown-up conversations about them. Conversations in which we recognise where claims are not substantiated or where the impact is not wholly positive. Once we're having these more grown-up conversations, we might appreciate that arts and culture are of even greater importance than we once thought, but with an importance more interrogated and more nuanced than we might have wanted it to be. How could it be otherwise? If arts and culture offered us reassuring certainties, we wouldn't need them, would we? Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.